This morning, we're in Matthew chapter 22. As we continue in a series dealing with the kingdom come, and really this day, we're, we're in a long day, this in one day of Jesus' life. Okay, so as we're, as we're coming back each week, we're just finishing the next conversation, and then the next conversation, the next interaction, the next, in one day of Jesus' life. It's a long day. And so Jesus' final day at the temple, interacting with people, it began with uh, him cursing the fig tree on the way to the temple. And then as he, as he got there, in fact, if you, if you jump to chapter 21, you have the triumphal entry. He comes in, and then chapter 21, verse 12, Jesus enters the temple, drove out all who sold and, and bought in the temple, overturned the tables. And then we go to verse 18. It says, in the morning, as he was returning to the city, he became hungry, seeing a fig tree. That's where he curses the fig tree. So it's the next day. So that's Tuesday. And then uh, verse 23, when he entered the temple, the chief priests, and the elders, the people came to him as he was teaching and said, by what authority, you know, what are you doing coming back in here after you flip the tables over? And who gave you the right to be telling us how to do things? And so, um, again, we're in the same day, so we're still on Tuesday. Um, and then you have um, him saying a series of, of parables, the parable of the two sons, parable of the tenants, which we looked at last um, a couple weeks ago, and then in verse chapter 22, verse 1, again Jesus spoke to them in the parable, saying, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king, which had a great wedding feast, as we talked about last week. Again, same conversation, still hanging out in the temple, and so he's still there, and then this is another conversation we, we're going to pick up in verse 15 this morning, then the Pharisees went and plotted how to entangle him in his talk. So the Pharisees, Jesus has set up camp in front of the temple, Okay, somewhere on the temple grounds, and he's continuing to teach and to say things that are really continuing to just burn the Pharisees and the Sadducees. The Pharisees were the conservative, Bible-believing, religious uh, Jewish leaders, okay? And so they were the ones that, to be honest, most of us would be on that team. We'd like those guys because they believed the Bible, and so that was awesome. And, and so, but they, they had a court that they would rule over, and they would make decisions, and they had the you know, court of the elders, of uh, the Pharisees would come together and they would make certain judgments on various things. And, and then you have the other group as the Sadducees, and those were the ones who, that was the high priest in his camp, all the priests that served in the temple, that's the Sadducees. And these were the religious leaders who really didn't have as high of a view of, of the Bible. They were passionate about the books of Moses, the first five books, the Pentateuch, the rest of the Bible, they really didn't give a lot of validity to, um, but they did believe and really saw Moses as their only authority and so they had a lot of kooky views, as we're going to see in a moment, of some things they did not agree with, they didn't believe were true in the rest of the Bible. And so, uh, they're, but they're the ones who have the kind of political power running the temple and kind of looking over um, the nation of Israel in Jerusalem. So the religious power brokers, um, as far as uh, out in the um, communities, what have you, with the Pharisees, they were the kind of the watchdogs making sure everybody's biblical. Sadducees were the ones who were kind of had a little bit of a closer relationship with with Rome and with the politicians, and they, were, they had the political power. Okay, make sense? That's the two camps, and, uh, and, and both of them are here. And so Jesus is continuing to, to have some conflict with these guys, and they're really getting frustrated, and, uh, and they've had enough of him, so they want to kill Jesus. They want to kill him. They want to get rid of him. And so they're trying to find a way 
to, uh, to get the people who are very excited about Jesus, thinking he's a prophet, maybe the Messiah. There's a, there's a great excitement going on here at the temple at this, this point. And so uh, Passover's about to be upon them. They're at the week of Passover. is about to kick off in a couple days. And so they're fired up, and everything is exciting and just amazing. And so uh, Jesus has great support at this point. And they're trying to find a way to divide and conquer Jesus. And so what they need to do is they need to take all these different factions, these different groups, the folks that are loyal to the Pharisees, the folks loyal to the Sadducees. There's another group called the Herodians, and they were loyal to King Herod. Uh, These were guys that they were supportive of the Roman government and of King Herod, who was an illegitimate king of, of Israel. Uh, they didn't see him as legitimate because he was not came down, didn't come through the bloodline that Jesus came through, who would, was rightfully the king. And, and so the Herodians was another, was another group. And so they're trying to figure out, well, how can we divide these guys and how can we get them mad at Jesus? So they begin to ask him a series of questions that are totally designed to trip Jesus up. And th- they're thinking that how, when they ask these questions, the way Jesus answers these questions is clearly going to offend one camp or another camp. So at the very least, we might not be able to get everybody to turn against him, but we will get him to make somebody mad, and we're going to trip Jesus up. So they have trick questions designed to entrap Jesus, but Jesus is a little too smart for that. And, and in their questions, they're going to raise some things that, we, here's the application for us, okay? What we're going to hear is Jesus is going to deal with their questions in such a way that, that number one, he doesn't get tripped up by them, but yet he shows them that they have a wrong understanding of the Bible and its purpose, and he's going to give them some insights and us some insights and how do we deal with certain things. Like, for instance, one of the topic, topics is taxes. How many of you guys ex- get excited paying taxes? Nor do I. All right, so we're all in agreement there. Um, nobody wants to pay taxes, so we don't have any Herodians here. Okay, none of you guys are loyal to the, the king, and you're fired up at the IRS, and you love taxation particularly as we increasingly grow without representation. We ought to be in agreement with that, right? We don't like taxes. Uh, then he gets into the issue of marriage and what happens with the resurrection and who you married to in the afterlife. When you're after the resurrection, uh, when we are uh, in heaven, who, who are you going to be married to if you had multiple spouses? And we'll see that in a second. So what Jesus shows is you have the wrong view of government, you have the wrong view of, of marriage, and you have a wrong view of the resurrection. And so the way he answers this gives us some good insights, and there's a great application for us at the end of, of how God has called us to live and the posture we should have as believers in a pagan and ungodly world that we live in, right? We are not, first and foremost, citizens of the United States of America, but we are first and foremost, when you surrendered your life to Christ, you became a citizen of heaven, and so we are sojourners, we're visitors here. You might have a passport that says that you're an American citizen, that's great, thankful to be in the nation that we are. I'm thankful to live in a place where we don't get beheaded for having uh, being followers of Jesus, where people don't hunt us out in our houses and, and kill our children and kill us because, because we're followers of Jesus, which is happening right now in northern Iraq and places in northern Africa. That's happening. Believers being persecuted. We, we, don't have to, we don't have to fear that at this point in our country. Thankful for that. But nonetheless, my identity does not come from our flag and our country, though I'm thankful for it comes from heaven as yours should and so jesus kind of works through these tensions and helps us know how to live in the community that god has placed us in so let's jump into verse 15 and let's read the passage here then the pharisees went and plotted how to entangle him in his talk and they sent their disciples to him along with the herodians saying teacher we may know 
that you are true and teach the way of God truthfully. And you do not care about anyone's opinion, for you are not swayed by appearances, a little condescending, a little kind of buttering him up a little bit. We, we know you're a great guy, and you're all about the truth. And you don't care what people think. You say what's right. We, we understand that. So tell us, then, what do you think? Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar, the emperor, or not? Should we pay Roman taxes to the emperor Caesar or not? But Jesus, aware of their malice, said, Why do you put me to the test, you hypocrites? Show me the coin for the tax. And they brought him a denarius. denarius. And Jesus said to them, Whose likeness is an inscription is this? And they said, Well, it's Caesar's. And he said to them, Therefore, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and give to God, render to God the things that are God's. And when they heard this, they marveled, and they left him, and they went away. Here's the, here's the question. How do we relate in society? Um, how does Jesus' kingdom affect these areas of our lives and the stuff of the earth? In other words, how does the kingdom of God affect temporal things like taxes and marriage? When, uh, and how does that clash with eternal things, eternal stuff like the resurrection and eternal life? Okay? How do those things work together? How does the kingdom manifest in our, in our, um, in our lives and what, what does that look like? And so three things to understand about taxes here. Um, they oppose the tax for three reasons. Teacher, we, we know that you're true. You teach the way of God truthfully. So tell us, what do you think? Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Again, they, the Herodians, they're all about paying some taxes because they want the political authority. The rest of the Jewish population hates taxes, as we do, and they opposed it for three reasons. Number one, they opposed Rome for being Gentile, non-Jewish rulers. They weren't. Uh, they did not believe in the one true God. They believed in false gods. They believed in a pantheon of gods. And they also believed that Caesar, the emperor, was a god or a son of gods, a son of the gods. And so they were against, the Jews were against because they, they did not believe in the one true God, Yahweh, and believe in him. And so they opposed them being rulers over them and saw them as illegitimate rulers. They were asked to pay a tax that was considered a poll tax and they pay, it was paid by all Jews to their Roman occupiers. Uh, by, so all Jews were to pay this tax once a year to their Roman occupiers. Not only were they to pay the tax, but number two, they were to pay the tax with a specific coin of denarius that had an inscription and a picture of Caesar on it. And, and under the picture, the inscription said, Son of a God. And so one of the things you have to understand in their culture is that the emperor was worshipped as a god. He was seen as a god. And so there was a kind of a cult of emperor worshippers where often people would even make sacrifices on behalf of the emperor. They would sacrifice certain things to celebrate and to worship the emperor. And so that's the second reason they had a problem with this tax. Number one, they opposed Rome for being Gentile, non-Jewish uh, rulers. Number two, they opposed Caesar, refusing to revere him as a god. They refused to see him that way. Strict Jews found this offensive with an image of the emperor in which they saw to be idolatry. So they were offended by having that. Most of the taxes they could pay with whatever money they had. But the poll tax they had to pay with the coin that had the picture of the emperor to show their allegiance to Rome and to emphasize Rome's power over them. That They hated that. Third reason is they had better uses for their money. <laughs> they could find better ways to spend their money than giving much more money to the Roman Empire that they did not need and they did not want to live without. The people did not want to live without that money. On the other hand, the Herodians, again, were loyal to Rome. 
They supported the tax. There's a group called the Zealots. They were an underground organization of fanatical Jews that they hated Rome, and they would create protests against Rome. And so uh, Simon the Zealot, one of the, one of the disciples, right? Simon the Zealot, they were zealous for God and for Israel, and they were against Rome. And so these were guys that would, that would often um, create um, protests against and oppose Rome. They were not against even taking up the sword against their occupiers, against the Roman government. But the goal of the Pharisees was to divide and conquer. They wanted to kill Jesus. They wanted to section off people, as I already mentioned. So here's the question for us. Should the people of God, this is a question for them, and this is parallels to us, should the people of God pay taxes in allegiance to a pagan foreign government and their emperor? Should the people of God pay taxes and allegiance to a pagan foreign government and their emperor. That, that's the question, ultimately, that they're trying to trap Jesus with. And that's a question for us. What do we do as citizens? If you don't agree with some things with the government, should you have to pay taxes? Should we pay taxes? Well, three, three observations that we get from this. Jesus' answer. Whose likeness is on the inscription? And they said Caesar's. Now, where did they get the coin? First of all, the people who oppose Caesar and don't like his rule pull a coin with his picture out of the pocket. So right there, Jesus has kind of checkmated them a little bit right there, and he's kind of cut their legs out. So they're, they're like, you know, he says, well, show me one of the coins. One of them pulls one out of the pocket, which shows that, you know, here they have this idolatrous coin in their pocket. So that is a little bit of a, a bust on them. But nonetheless, he says, whose picture is on it? He says, well, it's Caesar. He says, okay, well, then render to Caesar what is Caesar's. If that's his money, he's got his picture on it, then give him his temporary money that is his. Jesus doesn't argue over, well, should you really, and well, are they rightfully over you, and well, are they this and that. He doesn't get caught in the weeds of the logistics of, yeah, well, I mean, are they legitimately, whatever. He just says, look, give to Caesar what Caesar's, and then give to God what is God's. Three, three things we learn. First of all, Christians must honor and obey their rulers. Christians must honor and obey their rulers. He is not separating. This is interesting. Jesus is not saying, render to Caesar what is Caesar's, the secular, and then render to God what is God's, the sacred. This is the way that we view things, do we not? We separate the things of God from the things of this world. Do we not do that? And so often we'll, we'll say, well, you know, this is my, this part of my life is clearly, man, I surrender to Jesus. I'm all in. But then there's these other little parts of our life that, well, that's part of my secular life and i don't really worry about that you know and we divide there's certain things that we we run through the jesus filter and other things that we just live with that that really are in opposition to god maybe aren't healthy maybe aren't the best spiritual thing maybe they don't exhibit personal holiness in our lives but yet we separate as if you can divide those two things when jesus said love the lord your god with all of your heart mind soul okay he didn't say with part of it or a couple of days of the week or he said surrender your life fully to god every day, every area, right? So Jesus isn't saying, uh, but, but in that, Jesus is saying we must honor and obey rulers by giving the government what belongs to them, the temporal tax, and giving to God what belongs to him, which is everything. Everything. Jesus is saying obeying the government doesn't mean you're disobeying God. Who put the government in place? Who put the government in place? He said, well, we elected the government. Did we really elect the government? I mean, we did elect the government. We can debate whether or not it's leg- our you know, elections in the United States. Or there's, some, there's some monkeying that goes on. I think we all understand that. There's some things that aren't, aren't healthy 
Um, there's some issues, but for the most part, compared to other parts of the world, we have a pretty fair system and, and we elect. But here's the question, whether you like the president or don't like the president, who put him in the power? Well, people elected him. Well, ultimately, yes, but, but is God not sovereign in that? Does he not raise up who he wants and tear down who he wants? I mean, could it be that God has given us the exact person that would best represent who our nation really is year after year? And if we go back to the president, you say, well, you know what? We just need a God-fearing Christian uh, president. We need a president that is, is, loves Jesus and, and is, that, that would change. That, well, you know, I mean, I don't waste too much time on this, but Carter, you know, he was supposed to be a religious guy. He didn't really help things. Reagan was loved by the religious, you know, you know conservative uh, people, the Christian Coalition and whatever other group back then. And uh, he was Episcopalian. I, th- no, I don't even know that he had a, group, uh, a loyalty to whatever, but he was conservative in a lot of ways. And so Christians really elevated him. Did he make things more Jesus-honoring in our country? No. And then Bush Sr., he was Episcopalian. He didn't help things. Bush Jr. was Methodist. Al Gore and Bill Clinton were Southern Baptists. I mean, how did that help? He was a choir member at First Baptist uh, Little Rock. He would come in late every Sunday, so everybody saw him, sit in the front row of the choir, sing a couple songs, and then he'd go out as a governor of, of Arkansas. You know, he was a good old Baptist. Did he help think? No. I mean, at some point we have to wake up to the fact that, you know what, uh, what we need is, is repentance and revival in our country, not to elect a more spiritual guy than the last guy. And so now we've gotten, you say, well, well, Obama's a Christian. I don't think Obama's a Christian. You say, yeah, I know, I agree, he's Muslim. I don't think he's Muslim. I think he's a secular humanist, and he is socialistic in his thinking, okay? And you might, I don't offend anybody. I'm just trying to make the point that if we understand the worldviews of the people over us, all of these guys that we've elected over the last several decades do not have a biblical worldview that they ultimately operate under, and they're not going to change our country. Okay? But nonetheless, who put him in power? God is sovereign over the people that rule and reign. Do you not know it will get worse before it gets better? Be politically active. Vote for people that honor God. Certainly do that. Fight for that. It, it, you know, but, but let that not be the most important thing to you. The most important thing for us is to represent Jesus in the community and win folks to Christ that we can change our culture, change our community, uh, change our neighborhood, our city, state, region, and the country, and then the world, right? And until Jesus comes back, that we fight for that. Now, it might get worse in our country before it gets better. It might not ever get better in our country. God might be done with America, pulled his hand off of America, this is up, and our country might completely collapse in the next decade. What does that have to do with God's eternal plan? Does it really matter in the scheme of things? Ultimately, it doesn't. It doesn't. We cannot control the things that we can control. We can seek God, we can pray with God, and we can learn how to be faithful in the country God has called us to live. You might read 1 Peter, written to believers living in what was called Babylon, which is really the Roman Empire. Christians living in a, in a country with a, with a government that was becoming more and more ungodly. How do you function in that environment? Maybe we should read that book and start to think that way, right? And think of ourselves as sojourners and as uh, journeying through rather than trying to fight for um, God to be our president. Okay, that's not, that's not the win. 
So Christians must honor and obey their rulers. God raises up and takes down leaders however he wants. Pray for revival, pray for renewal, pray for... But, but don't think that politically is, our political influence as Christians is going to be the answer. It's not. Second point, Christians must honor and obey God first. Caesar may be emperor, but he is not God. Obama may be our president. Before him, Bush might have been a president. And before him, uh, Clinton might have been a president. We can go back. Whatever president you want to pick that was your favorite, but he's not God. You understand that? Thankful to have the leaders we have, but they're not God. All right? And so what, what, what does this mean for us? Philippians chapter 3, verse 20. Listen to this. Our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we may await a Savior. Where does our Savior come from? Everybody together. Our Savior comes from, let me read the first phrase again. Our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we may await a Savior. So what's gonna, where's our Savior going to come from? He's going to come from, starts with an H. Heaven, thank you. He will not come from Washington or Texas because it's a big state and they have a lot of electoral votes. Or our, our Savior's not going to come from California. Or he's not going to come from New York. He's going to come from heaven. Okay? We got that. All right. So uh, Acts chapter 5, verse 29. But, but Peter, the apostle, answered, we must obey God rather than men. We must obey God rather than men. Again, our allegiance goes to God. But, but listen to Jeremiah chapter 29. You guys know verse 11. Um, I know the plans I have for you, plans to prosper, not for calamity. Well, before that, listen to this. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. In other words, the Jews sinned. God judged them. He destroyed. He sent Nebuchadnezzar to destroy. He, God, sent Nebuchadnezzar to destroy Jerusalem and the temple, center point of Judaism and Christianity, I mean, of, of, of Judaism and of uh, temple worship and all that. God sent the person who destroyed it. If he, I don't know if you're connected to the dots here. If he would destroy Jerusalem, do you think that he's like nervous about America? Side point. Anyways, um, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, to the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Here's what he tells them. Build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have some sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that you may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease, but seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile, and pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare, you will find its welfare. Here's what God's saying. I know you live in a land that is pagan and is ungodly and is very wicked. And I I know it's difficult. And in 70 years, I'm going to send you back to your homeland, and you're going to be able to rebuild the temple, and things will be restored. But for 70 years, you're going to live in exile. Don't wait for 70 years to start living your life again. I want you today to have some kids, plant a garden, build a house, live, and pray for the good of your city, which is Babylon, the world, right? Pray for the good of your city, because if your city prospers, then you will prosper. So, so first point is, is to understand that God calls Christians to honor and obey their rulers, but second to that, we must honor and obey God first. 
and, and, and understand that those two things aren't contradictory. You can honor your, our, our, our governmental officials and those in authority over us, ultimately undering, uh, um, honoring God who is over all things. To, to, to go a little further with this thought, First uh, Peter chapter 2, verse 11 says, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles... Again, you're saying, well, Jeremiah, that's written to the Old Testament, Old Testament to the Jews. They don't really apply to us today. Well, okay, New Testament, 1 Peter, this should apply to us. I urge you as sojourners, exiles, to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles. Enter non-Christians, you can put there. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable. So that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. It goes on to say, be subject to, for the Lord's sake, to every human institution, whether it is to be the emperor as supreme or governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you may put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Jesus is saying, I'm much less concerned about y'all taking over your nation politically, and I'm much more concerned about you living for my glory and being a light to the people that live around you. I'm more concerned about the soul of your nation, the people in your nation, than the flag that they raise. Flags are temporal. I mean, governments are temporal. Souls last forever. People last forever. I'm more concerned with you being passionate and living in such a way that, you, that you, are, you give no room for the people around you that are far from God to have any questions about the great God that you have surrendered your life to. I, I, I'm more concerned with you representing Him well than you representing your political party well. You, you follow me? So what Jesus, and, and again, this might be offensive for some of you, and we can talk about this more later if you're very offended at what I'm saying. I'd be glad to dialogue with you about this. But, but I'm telling you, there's got to be a mind shift among believers if there's any hope for our country and the world and that we focus on living for Jesus in a way that, that, uh, in a, in a way that brings glory to God, that they see our good deeds and they glorify God on the day of his visitation. They glorify God on the day of his visitation. So, a couple thoughts on this. The passage goes on to say, not only submitting to yourself to good bosses, but even to those who treat you wrong. So you might say, not only submitting yourself to good governments and good political officials, good bosses, but also to those that are bad. Because the bigger issue is that when you suffer injustice, you do it like Jesus did on the cross where he was wrongly crucified. And as he was being wrongly crucified, he entrusted himself to the Father who would one day, who would one day, uh, who would rescue him and would, would one day set things right and show that he is the one true God. He was going to set it right. He would trust himself to the Father to be his defender. And we, in the same way, we don't get mad and say, well, you know what, I have rights and you can't talk to me. No, you can't treat me that way. You can't. We say, you know what? I'm just gonna. I'm gonna love unconditionally. I'm gonna serve unconditionally. I'm gonna represent Jesus well to the good and bad bosses, rulers, authorities. 
so that Jesus can be seen. And when they ask, what's the deal with you? We have been purposely unkind to you for years, and yet you keep continuing to be kind back. What's the deal? And First Peter, the book we've just been referring to, goes on to say, then you can give an answer for the hope that is within you. That's not an advertisement for apologetics. Okay, that is an advertisement for believers to be willing to suffer injustice so that Christ can be seen in their lives. Which brings us to the, to the last... All right, here's the final point on this, this passage. We all bear God's image and belong to God. But some of us do not know this. Okay, the problem many of them had is because on that coin, there was an image of the emperor and they felt like that was idolatry. And so they didn't want to worship the emperor. And the reality is God has taken his image and the eternal creator of the universe has not lobbied and pushed and written in his word that we would put it on a coin. In fact, this is interesting. In God we trust, God is less concerned with that being on our coins, although I think it's cool that it's there. I don't know that it'll be there long. It's cool that it's there. But God is less concerned about whether that's on our coins and more concerned about his image represented in his people. In the creation, this thing, there was this thing called the Imago Dei, the image of God. God created us with his image. In Genesis chapter 1, I'm sorry, chapter 1, verse 26, it says this. Then God said, let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish and the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over livestock and over all of the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. This is why we, as Christians, elevate women, that we don't oppress women, while, because they are image bearers too. It's not that God created man, and then he pulled woman from man, and so she's just kind of a, uh, a secondary kind of part of the possessions of man. But no, she is created with purpose, dignity, and worth, just like her husband is created with purpose, dignity, and work, uh, worth. And so even though there might be order in the home, as there is order in the Trinity, there is also equality. It's God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit are all equal in the same way the husband and the wife are equal, even though God has set up certain roles and how we function, they're completely equal in that they are both image bearers of God and should receive one another as image bearers of God. So God has placed his image on us, which means that everybody has the image of God embedded in them, whether they are a Christian or a non-Christian. All of us are image bearers of God. God. All of us are image bearers of God. All of us have the Imago Dei. We all have purpose. We all have dignity. We all have worth. This is why as Christians we value all life. Unborn life and even the lives of those who the tests say are not going to be normal because they also have the image of God. They are created with purpose, with dignity, and with worth. So we can value people who mentally might not be able to, to, uh, able to contribute in society in the way that we stereotypically think people should because we understand that everybody has purpose and has dignity and has worth. You, you with me?
And so we are image bearers of God. Just like a coin in the pocket has the picture of the, em- the, the emperor, we all have a, a picture, a stamp on our soul that represents God to the world around us. The, the most pagan, wicked person and the most seemingly godly person both have the image of God stamped upon their soul. Colossians chapter 3, verse 10, it says, have, And have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. So after the fall, the image of God has been tainted. And so we look towards a time where when we give our lives to Christ, suddenly now that image can be restored and can be seen for what it really is. Even though it's still there in the most wicked person, it has now been, been veiled and we don't see it in the same way that we did see it. But you know what? Interestingly enough, you can look at the most wicked person. You can look, let's just pick on Hitler. Clearly, always figure he's an incredibly wicked person. But you know what? He had family. He had relatives that I'm sure he showed kindness and love to. How in the world can such a wretched, wicked, evil demonic person show love to some people it seems like a contradiction but the reality is he was created in the image of god with purpose with dignity and with worth and because of the fall and because of his refusal to repent and to put his trust in jesus be changed and transformed he became increasingly wicked even though there was a slivers of the image of god that were still visible in him even in his most wicked days so all of us have the image of God, but, but if we would surrender our lives to Christ, then we could be renewed in knowledge after the image of our Creator, according to Colossians chapter 3, verse 10. C.S. Lewis, he said this, There are no ordinary people. There are no ordinary people. You have never talked to a mere mortal. Nations, cultures, arts, civilizations, these are mortal. Morte means death. These are things that die. Okay? Nations die. Nations die. Civilizations die. Cultures die. The latest music trend, the latest technology dies. Okay? It's not eternal. Those things are mortal. Morte, they die. These are mortal, and their life is to ours as the life of a gnat. But it is immortals whom we joke with. We work with, we marry, we snub or ignore, or we exploit and use. Immortals, immortal horrors or everlasting splendors. What he's referring to is after the death, we are going to continue and live forever. We are not eternal, meaning that we always have been and always will be, but we are immortal in that there's a beginning and we will not die. You'll spend eternity separated from God as a as an unimaginable um, immortal horror under the judgment of God in hell, or as an everlasting, uh, in, in everlasting splendor as we are given a new body and we spend eternity in heaven with God. This does not mean that we are to be perpetually solemn. We must play. But our merriment, our play, must be of that kind And it is, in fact, the merriest kind, should be the happiest kind, which exists between people who have, from the outset, taken each one seriously, each other seriously. Not flippancy, no flippancy, no superiority, no presupposition or no presumption. So we love each other and we view one another, lost or found, 
saved or, or unsaved as image bearers. So let, pause for a second. What if, what if we left this building today and when you went to go fill up because you didn't have time before church to fill up your car with gas and you go to the gas pump and you're filling up and the attendant walks by, what if you looked at that, that guy right there walking by and you thought for a second, that's an image bearer of God. In fact, he's an image bearer of God, but he's likely a lost image bearer of God. He's a lost image bearer. What if you went to a restaurant and your, your waiter, waitress, whatever, was, was just kind of cold and whatever and just short with you? What, what, what if you stop for a second and you begin to think, instead of getting frustrated because of the way he or she is acting, you thought, you know what, they're probably a lost image bearer of God. They're another immortal lost image bearer of God. What if your neighbors, what if your co-workers, what if your uh, family members are so frustrating to deal with? What if all the people around you, you begin to look at other people, not as mere mortals, but as immortals, as image bearers of God, lost image bearers of God? What, what would that do if we begin to change our minds in the way that we pursue other people? You see, as Christians, we should be the best citizens a country could ever want. We should be the best uh, workers we should be the best waiters and servers we should be the best teachers and the best parents and the best children we should be the 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 best in whatever category because we know that the image of god is within us and as followers of jesus it is being restored and we're looking more and more like jesus and we love everybody not judgmentally but knowing that they are lost image bearers of god immortals we change our perspective. Jesus shared a parable of the lost coin in which its owner searched relentlessly until he found the coin he had lost. And God has sent us to pursue the lost image bearers of God. Those, not coins, not temporal coins, but those whose the image of God is upon, that we would pursue them, that they would come into a right relationship with Jesus. Let's pray. Father, you have sent us after the lost image bearers of, of God, those who you created with your image, you have imprinted upon their immortal souls your image, tainted and suppressed because of sin, but ready to be restored and renewed. And God, I, I pray that as believers we would stop getting caught in the weeds of the arguments of being the Herodians or the Sadducees, the Pharisees, arguing our different position politically. But God, that we would understand that we are here for a greater, more eternal purpose and that we would understand that we need to render to the temporal governments and world what it needs to be rendered there, but live ultimately surrendering everything to you for the hope that the lost image bearers of God would be found and restored to you. God, if there's anybody here that doesn't know you, doesn't have a right relationship with you, I pray that they would come talk to me or somebody before they leave this building, that they would nail down, that they need to know Jesus, know the one whom they were created, whose image is upon their soul, that they would come into a right relationship, be restored to the one who they were created to know. And Father, for those of us that know you, may we be renewed in our passion for the lost image bearers of God. God, as we give, may we give to that end. As we reflect and sing and think, God, may we, may we ask you to do great work in our hearts and souls as we meditate upon these truths right now. 
Father, we pray that you would uh, do a great work in our hearts and lives, that you would not allow the enemy to steal the seeds that have been planted. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.